So, in you know, the human experience, let, let, let's look at that for a second. I mean, it suggests that, that life is oftentimes challenging, right? Self-compassion plays a role in dealing with the stressful aspects of life. At the same time, you have the ability to develop a, a strength, a wherewithal, and become courageous in that endeavor. Um, and, and it elevates the understanding of the importance of self-care practices, right? Because we're supposed to self-care regularly. Mm-hmm. There's so much research on it. Mm-hmm. All right. So so the idea when you enter when you when you look at self-compassion, it's the idea of taking a proactive approach to living your life, knowing that hard times are normal. This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. All right, uh, welcome to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. And today, our guest is a hospice chaplain in Mississippi, uh, James. James, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Could you um, introduce yourself? Okay. So my name is uh, Charles James Parker. Uh, I have the pleasure of serving as the lead chaplain with Palladium Hospice and Palliative Care. Um, Our companies provide support to terminally ill patients and their families in Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina. Um, I uh, have earned a, a bachelor's in occupational education in 2002 a Master in Divinity and Chaplaincy in 2013, uh, a Doctor of Education and Pastoral Counseling in 2019. And uh, I am, I'm proud to say that I'm an Advanced Practice Board Certified Chaplain with uh, Hospice and Palliative Care Specialty. Um, so I'm, I'm truly, truly honored to be talking with you all today. And this is really, really exciting. Thanks for having me on. So it's your, your background. Uh, of course, everybody's background is uh, indicates what you know, how they've come to this point in ministry. Could you uh, inter- give us a, an idea of how you're, you grew up and where you grew up and things that might have touched your life that you can look back now on and say, oh, these are all the steps that God provided for me. Uh, can you share some of that? A- absolutely. I mean, there, there's, there's so many things that I could speak to, um, but I, I'll, I'll try to simplify it. You know, my family roots on my mother's side, they stem from uh, the islands of Barbados, while my father's side takes root in uh, South Carolina. I was born in 1975 in upstate New York to Charles and Diane. Um, around around two years old or so, uh, they got divorced. Uh, so my mother and I lived in, in Brooklyn and then later uh, Long Island, uh, New York, where I grew up. Um, and so it was just me and my mom. Uh, since that time. And I really just never knew uh, much about Charles. Uh, But when I was 10, uh, my mother remarried and I was raised by my father, William Henry Robinson. Mm. Um, Interestingly, uh, I kept my my last name because uh, I've always believed that that's the name I was born with. Mm. Um, But William, that is unquestionably uh, the name of my father. My mother's father, the Reverend uh, James Streeter, uh, died over 19 years ago. And William, who I lovingly called Pop, recently died in 
uh, January of this year. Uh, nevertheless, in honor of uh, my father's, in honor of my father, um, I named my son Charles William. Mm-hmm. And in honor of my grandfather, I go by James. Now, I am married to this wonderful woman of 24 years. Her name's Anitra. Uh, she's from Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I have a daughter named Karen, who's 24, uh, another daughter named Elena, and uh, she's 19. So my wife and my oldest daughter, my son and I, we live in Mississippi, but my 19-year-old, she attends college in New York, and we are just so, so proud of her. Uh, I can't even I, I can't even fully express that. She attends the Culinary Institute of America, High Park, New York, and mm-hmm. um, it's just amazing. Uh, she's just an amazing individual. All my children are. Yeah. Uh, she, she's really uh, she's really taking some big steps and to go from Mississippi to New York, and uh, it, it's just um, it's a sight to see. Yeah. So, you prepared her well. Well, I believe I believe she has a relationship with God and like my parents and they set a great example for me. And and so I, I would like to think that my Anitra and I did the same for her. But yeah. she she owns it. It's her it's her accomplishments, <laughs> not, not not ours. Yeah. But yeah. Well, we try to be so humble with our children there, James. Uh, I, I agree with Saul. You, uh, you and your wife have given a solid foundation yes. to your daughter, and uh, even you know, even help, even introducing her uh, to God, and that's what it's all about. Uh, speaking of God, how did you become so passionate about ministry? Well, I think it it really kind of it just begins with where my faith is rooted, you know, and, and I think there's a big difference between, you know, uh, religion and spirituality. And I won't delve too deeply into that, but I will say that from a religious standpoint, you know, I, I, I grew up as an Episcopalian, <laughs> I, yeah. you know, I took, uh, I would attend uh, St. Paul's Episcopal church in East Patchogue, New York and uh, my mom and dad. And, and, and that's what we did, you know, Sundays. And it seemed like just about every day of the week, we were doing something with the church. Uh-huh. Well, I, I went through catechism. You know, I had grant, been granted the rights to sacraments uh, of, of Christ's body and blood, served as an acolyte for, for many, many years. But I have to tell you, you know, in time, uh, life is life. And and I, I was very difficult <laughs> during that time. I would say probably, you know, it's best, especially between, you know, 1990 and 1989. I, I think well, I definitely... It's always nice to give through. a little confession, you know. <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it is. You know, it's the, it, it is confession. Uh, it is the truth. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I, I have to tell you, you know... There was some really, it was a really uh, difficult time for my folks and for me. Um, I was going through some stuff and and I found myself in a church service. Um, it was the Stations of the Cross, right? And um, and that's, you know, in the Episcopal faith, you know, you typically do certain things at a certain time, right? Mm-hmm. You, you pray, you, you kneel, you stand, you bow, you know, you do the, these things um, to show respect and, 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 and a, a respect uh, for for the reverential um, authority, which is is God, and so uh, I, I found myself in this service um, really broken 
Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I I had lost childhood uh, childhood friend. Um, you know, I I'd, I'd really acted out in a major major way, and and uh, in that moment, um, wow, I just something happened to me, right? Um, uh-huh. And I decided during a particular time that you know what I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let go and there was a time to kneel and and uh and I did that but I prayed from my heart like I found myself confessing you know to God how just terribly sorry I am and just all these things and I was weeping tears of sadness right and in the midst of that I felt like there was no one else in the church, like I was sitting there, I was kneeling there <laughs> rather, mm-hmm. and, I, and I couldn't get up. Mm. It was, it was, it was absolutely hard to describe, but I felt like there was this weight on me. I really, really did. And, and in an instant, I kind of lost like any sense of anything that I had done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it simply became this moment where I was simply in the presence of something much, much greater than myself. Mm. And as my tears fell, I, I spoke to that power and, and I just said, you know, (laughs) you take this. And I cried so hard. And in an instant, I felt comfort. Like I had never experienced before in my life. I felt, I felt a hand on my right shoulder. And those tears that I was crying, they, they transitioned from tears of sadness to tears of joy. It, it, was, it was a peace. It was, it was a warmth. And it changed me. It really did. And, and later, you know, after having, you know, confessed and accepted Christ into my heart and, and into my life, um, you know, I, I remember asking my mom, did, did I offend you? Did I embarrass you? You know, I was just so apologetic about every little thing. And, and she said, no, no, I, I just, I just watched you and I looked at you and I continued the service and I prayed for you. And I, and I said, I, I'm, you know, thanks for, you know, putting your hand on me. Thanks for, thanks for that. I, that, that really was comfortable. And she said, Charles, I, I never touched you. No one did. And when she said that, it's like my mouth just dropped. Like what? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it, it was it was absolutely incredible. Um, so so you know, I went from there. I mean, it, you know, I was all in, right? So I, I grow and, and and I become an adult. And so many years later, you know, I leave for college. I left uh, to go to Alabama. I went to Tuskegee University, and um, and, and I would attend. Uh, Episcopal services here and there, mm-hmm. and this just getting caught up in the college life. I just stopped attending. I lost interest, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I just you know I did what probably very many people in college just starting out away from home did. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I got caught up, mm-hmm. and but you know with with the ebb and flow, right, the ups and downs of everything. I I, I had something really awesome happen, right? I met my my the love of my life. I met my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we began dating and just living this life and going to college. And in uh, 1996, uh, we married, um, had my daughter, Karen. And um, it was a change. It was it was amazing. But at the same time, <laughs> I had some challenges. You know, in 1998, I left college. I, I dropped out and uh, I enlisted in the military. And so while I dropped out of college and enlisted in the military, I also left the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Um, I, I, was, I wound up being stationed in uh 
at Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. And and they had churches, you know, you throw a rock, you would hit a church in, in Texas. <laughs> Every corner. <laughs> Every corner. It was, it, was, it was wild. And, uh, you know, in the military, you know, just all these different faith traditions. So that afforded me the opportunity to experience something different from what I was raised. And I had, you know, visited a Baptist church and and uh, just something took hold of me. And I, and I decided to rededicate my life. So I was baptized by immersion. Mm-hmm. at that little local church in Texas. And, uh, and I started living for God to please him and um, been going ever since. Were you, uh, did you go in being a chaplain? No, 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 no. I, I, I went into the military and I was, uh, I was ground support and, you know, I, I did, I did what I needed to do, but it was nothing, nothing like chaplaincy or ministry at all. Okay. <laughs> so what was the motivation to join the military? Well, I would honestly say that, you know, I was, I was young, right? You know, I was young. I was a college student in my, you know, my final year. I was studying architecture. And I, and I had this, this young wife, this, this little baby who the doctor said, you know, they, they said my daughter wouldn't live past 24 hours due to complications uh, during pregnancy. And, um, you know, my faith was strong. Um, I, you know, I, I remember seeing her for the first time and, and, and saying, Hey, Karen, you know, I'll see you later. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, and here we are, you know, 24 years later. So, you know, look at the power of God. And, and so during that time, you know, I was working two jobs, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was doing odd jobs to support this new family. I mean, not to mention, right, the cost of, of healthcare for this special needs child. I mean, it was eye-opening, to say the least. And, um, you know, I'd had some, some ROTC in high school and college, and, and so I had plans to enter the military after earning my degree anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this experience with, with this new family, um, with this child with special needs, it proved to be absolutely and totally overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a part of my life that uh, I honestly thought it, it, I just didn't see an end to to that or a way out. And uh, and so I moved up my plans and entered the military knowing that, you know, I could provide for my family, complete my education. And and when the time was right, I would, you know, I would do that. And, but I did, you know, eyes wide open. I went in knowing the cost would be high. Um, and it most certainly was. But I believe uh, that it was, it was definitely the right decision. What did it cost you? It cost me everything. Mm. it cost me, you know, experiencing a divide on so many different levels. It challenged my marriage. It, mm. it, it challenged uh, my relationships because it, it is a, a, a life that places you in, in a position um, that you have to make some, some tough choices knowing full well that there's a bigger picture. Mm. Um, and that's about the only way that I can describe that. So how did you mend uh, the brokenness that that brought? I think um, you know just delving delving into into scripture, mm-hmm. um, and I really you know I prayed, uh, I tried to live my life honestly, and I and I just I just embraced the values of, of the people that I saw to be people of of value, uh, yeah. people of standard. I would say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, and I recalled, you know, I recalled, you know, what I was exposed to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my mother and my father and you know, my granddad. Yeah. 
So is there a particular incident or experience in your life there, James, that uh, really triggered or you acknowledge is where it really, you really realized that you had a call to ministry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there are really so many, so many things that I can speak to, but I feel that there was a time leading up to, I guess, in the midst of my military experience that I felt as though I, I needed to be planted in a church and mm. um, I, I needed to really find my way, uh, so to speak, mm. um, in, in the world as, as a man who was responsible for other people. Like I was responsible to my wife, responsible mm. uh, to my daughter. And, and I, I was really serious about the fact that I wanted to to be the head of my household, but in, in a manner that was befitting what I understood God represented to uh, to the world. And and that is just not something that you just <laughs> you just think about and say, oh, you know, I, I'll give that a try. I mean, it was it was a serious thing for me, mm. and I struggled. There was some anguish in the midst of that, because to be quite honest, I felt that I was not, <laughs> I was not ministry material. Uh, you know, I, I did not feel like, you know, I could, you know, recite scriptures or lay hands on people or that anyone would ever see me as someone that they would listen to. It, it just was that way for me. My self-perception was not that high, but, you know, I dedicated my life to studying scripture. I attended various faith traditions. Um, I, you know, <laughs> you know, it, that is what I did. And, and, and in doing that, you know, I, I still did my military work. Um, I deployed, you know, I deployed twice and between 2002, I, you know, 2006, I deployed twice. Um, I attended, you know, worship services when I could, but, you know, it became very difficult. And, and so in the midst of that, you know, I, I thrust myself into education, completing my undergrad and, and, um, Mm-hmm. You know, I, I returned from my second deployment to my family um, and found this church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was totally amazing. Um, it, it, you know, it was in Newport News, Virginia, under Pastor Richard Mims. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, this guy was, you know, is incredible. Um, his family, uh, the way he preached, dynamic. And, and I... I I likened myself to just being in awe of him, but knowing full well that he is no doubt a man of God. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had no doubt in my mind and I had come across many preachers and teachers. And I said to myself, yeah, this guy has it. Um, <laughs> and so, so I just, honestly, I, I just enjoyed going to church every Sunday. I enjoyed going to, you know, Bible study Wednesday nights and I, I just felt compelled to get close. And, and because of who I was becoming at the time, I felt like, you know what, he's just such this, this man of God. And I started to look at ways to, to support him. I mean, that, that was really, it was a simple fact of that. Like, I felt like God was telling me, you know, just find a way, <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever, whatever way, you know, just find a way and, and I'll equip you. And so, um, I would get up early, early uh, before church. <laughs> I'd meet him in the parking lot as he's driving up, him and his wife. 
and I would say, hey, good morning. Good morning, my brother. Good morning, my sister. And I'd grab his briefcase and, you know, <laughs> and he'd look at me sideways like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, just the, just the kindness and of a, of a greeting to uh, to Sister Mims and, and, and offer, you know, is there anything I can do for y'all? And I would just walk with them up to the church doors. And, and, and I just felt like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't have any pretense. I didn't have an agenda. I just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. So I did it. Hmm. And, uh, and over time it was wild. I would pray for him, you know, before services, I would talk with him any chance I got, like I would sit with him after service and, you know, I, we would go, my family and I would go to his house and we would eat and, and just fellowship. And it was, it was an experience that I had never, never experienced ever. And it was incredible. And so uh, I started to really embrace the standard of living, right? Mm. And, and I, I, I looked at his family and how he treated his wife and, how, you know, all these things. And I just learned. I, I, I basically just sat at his feet and learned. And, uh, and we became so close. Um, he was, you know, I, I likened him to my spiritual father, no doubt. Mm. And, and there was another aspect of that. I had this other <laughs> woman who was also, a, a, you know, the associate pastor there and, 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 and she became my spiritual mother. And so it was absolutely incredible. And so I, after about a year or so of just, just doing this thing, mm. you know, I, I had this conversation with Pastor Mims and I said, you know, I would really, you know, like to serve as your armor bearer. You know, I learned about all these different things and I, I really just kind of like to take that post. And we talked about it. Mm. But the wild thing is that <laughs> after we talked about it, I got orders for my third deployment. Like I had mm. to, I got orders to go to Afghanistan <laughs> right after that conversation. I was like, God, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, what's happening here? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so I went. Um, and so, you know, after my second deployment, I started journaling a lot. Um, and, and during this deployment, uh, I was I was sitting in Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, and I, and I remember I wrote in I wrote in my journal um, specifically and said while in combat ground combat training at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, I believe the, the Lord called me to preach. I was reading my daily de- bread devotional, and and the scripture that was read was Romans twelve six, and it says having been gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, mm. let us use them. And I, I called Anitra, talked about going into seminary, and we are in agreement going forward to God be the glory. And and that was the beginning. Like, I I had no doubt that the Lord had placed me in that position and was working on me in such a way. And I had all of these examples through the course of my life. Um, and I had made the decision um, to do that. And mm. it was a very unique, you know, a unique experience. Um and I started preaching, you know, I, I was, I landed in Afghanistan and uh, I went to three different locations, Bagram, uh, Kabul, Kandahar, and all three of those locations, I, I would preach mm. and uh, teach scripture and, you know, run Bible studies. And it, it seemed as though, you know, the opportunities presented themselves every time. Like I would go to different locations and uh, there wouldn't be a chaplain there. And I would be looking for a Bible study. And, and, and in my mind, it was like, well, I'm here. I'm desiring of it. Um, let's just do it. Let's do it. <laughs> you know? And uh, the yeah. Lord equipped me to do it. Yeah. You know, earlier so, on, uh, as you were talking about the beginnings of your call and your doubting whether you were mm-hmm. called, before the show, Joe was also sharing a bit of... Joe, could you share some of your, your story in relation to A story to about that? Yes. 
Well, well I was in seminary. I was in seminary. I went to Chicago Theological Seminary. And during your second year, you get evaluated by the your advisor, uh, the president, and I don't know who the third person, but there's three people. And I knew that this evaluation was coming up after the first semester. And I was, I was fretting it, putting it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was nervous and anxious, and I did a lot of praying. And I kept praying to God, and I would sit in the quietness, and I had my eyes closed, and I'd look around, and there was absolutely nothing but darkness. And I took it one, I took it one of two ways as I was asking God to show me what it is that I need to be doing. So if you're not showing me anything, is that telling me I'm not supposed to be doing this? Or is it telling me this, that I have to do it and there's nothing else for me to do? Uh, finally, it became my time to go and get evaluated. And I'm in there and I'm you know, questioning them about my ability to minister and showing my anxiety. And they look at me and said, what is your problem? What are you talking about? You're more than, you know. And I'm like, oh, so those prayers were telling me that God is telling me there's nothing else that I should be doing but this. Mm. And that's where it is right now. And I, God has been right. You know, uh, I look at your, I look at your, your story here, James, and uh, much longer, not similar, but it's a similar story. Uh, mm. I wanted to get to seminary right away. I thought I, you know, I was a little bit older. I was a second career clergy person. Thought I could just jump right in and do this work that I'm supposed to be doing, that I'm called to do. And the seminary in their in their wisdom told me, no, you got to finish your undergraduate. And I thought, oh, crud, what do I need to do that for? And I had to wait two years. And I looked back on that and said, yeah, God, put that, put that right in the right place for me. Because if this was something, if you looked at my history and my work history, if this was something that I was supposed to do, uh, I had better be able to follow through on what it is that I needed to do or else I was just going to be like I was in the past where if it came, I thought it was too much of a problem. I couldn't, I wouldn't do it. Right. And then I had to grow up, put my big boy pants on and, and here I am. And uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing how God works. Yes. And just, so jumps you in the military and you're feeling this intense call and you're doing right. Bible study. That is a, that's amazing. So at what point did you begin to think of chaplaincy as a home of ministry for you? You know, interestingly, I, I think chaplaincy was, was always at the forefront of my mind um, because my service as a pastor, uh, you know, was very different uh, than my volunteer service as a chaplain uh, in any other setting. I, I think for a long time, um, I was just not sure what type of chaplain garment <laughs> was right for me. Ah. <laughs> so, there are many. Um, yeah, there's many. Uh, but uh, I think what what was the turning point for me was the fact that you know you know I completed my my MDiv in, in chaplaincy uh, in 2013, and you know I began CPE, clinical pastoral education, and I, and I think that. That experience brought me to a place having a cohort, having um, just different people uh, sharing their experiences. It really led me to really examine, you know, healthcare chaplaincy, um, and so I did. So uh, I I did CPE, you know, and ha- you know definitely um, was continuing to to do uh, service work in the hospital, um, and and so I 
I wound up being medically separated from, from the air force after about 17 and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, 2016, when I separated, I, I worked part-time as a, as a staff chaplain in the, in the hospital in Hattiesburg, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Continued to do CP, completed my, my last CP unit in 2018, right? And and I began the board certification process. Like it seemed, it, as soon as I committed to to going forward in that direction, it was like the Lord just started opening doors one after the other, bringing people into my life that really helped me because um, I just did not envision <laughs> that that's the direction that I would go. I had yeah. no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just continuing forward, you know, I, um, uh, earned my doctorate in education in, in March of 2019. Right. And then, then, uh, in April of 2019, um, I, you know, became a, a full, full-time hospice chaplain with palladium hospice and palliative care, earned my board certification. Um, by March of 2020, I earned my advanced practice board certification and hospice and palliative care certification and it was it's just been amazing it's just been really really back to back for the first time um you know you know starting this journey i I can honestly say and i think about this regularly in gratitude that wow i'm doing something that i really feel i should have been doing all my life (laughs) i mean it's that it's that simple um and I i just i just know that that's what God designed me to do. And, and just looking over my life, I really feel like every challenge, every every opportunity um, that I became willing to just trust him, uh, lean on my, my concentric circle, I really feel as though uh, God was training me and getting me ready to do what it is that I do. And I just, I just love it. I love being a hospice chaplain. Um, so. <laughs> it has its challenges. What do you find challenging and what do you love? Well, I don't. I don't think anything worth doing is easy, mm-hmm. um, and I think that there's always something to learn. Um, I think, I think the the barrier or challenges I would say are are really myself. You know, I, I really, I really believe that. I think that, you know, um, you know, the situations um, that we face as hospice chaplains, uh, the things that we see and experience, uh, they they are. They are unique, but they are something that um, you know we must. Someone must do it, um, and and if I am willing to to venture out um, to become close uh, and part of something just uh, brand new, um, then then I, I believe that I'm I'm doing exactly what I'm designed to do. But I feel like there's externally there's really there's really uh, the system um, and understanding the system and maneuvering through the system, um, but but internally, you know, as a as an individual, as a man, I do not separate my my service as a chaplain to who I am as a as a man, as a person, a mm-hmm. husband, a father. Amen, Joe. Can you uh, share some of your? Experiences as uh, dealing with patients and their families. Anything that really tripped your trigger? Um, sure. I'm, you know, of course, you know, being a staff chaplain and being a hospice chaplain, uh, you know, very, very different in very many regards. Um, I think, 
you know, as a hospital chaplain, um, if you're in a hospital setting, you're doing, you know, you have a set patient list. Um, you're, you're going door to door, you know, it's spiritual triage, right? You're going one by one. You don't know what's on the other side of the door. Um, and, 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 and those, those encounters, they happen fairly quickly. You have about a 10 to 15 minute window uh, to, you know, to assess, build rapport, uh, all those things. And then, um, and then stop and get ready for the next, <laughs> the next person. Right. But in chaplaincy, right. It, it is a, it is a much, uh, I would say more uh, systematic approach, I think, uh, in that you can pause. Um, you can really take your time with encounters. Uh, you can really spend time and in, and in, in cultivate relationships. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think that that is the biggest part of hospice chaplaincy is bringing yourself to every encounter. Um, and if you if you're focused on the clock, uh, I think that that is a barrier. Um, and and that's just not what happens in hospice. Um, you know, a a family member. I might be visiting a family member. And then uh, a patient, and then the family member might say something that discloses some type of spiritual distress. And now I'm shifting, and sure. and that becomes you know another aspect of that encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I I really don't feel like I'm I'm rushed and, unless a, a a patient or a family gives me some indication that you know we we need to we need to end this you know we're we're right. done. Uh, right. I I look for those those nonverbal cues and. And uh, you know, and I, and I act accordingly. But up until then, I'm not even thinking about time. I'm just in that moment. I'm, I'm, I'm working. Present. Where did you? I mean, how did you figure this out? I mean, I, I've been with other chaplains who don't have the same thought as you, and mm. how they approach it. And I'm just wondering because I feel the same way as you. I mean, I, I, I don't know. That's how I do it. I think. Um, I, honestly, I, I don't. I can't say that that's an overnight thing. I think right. Every, right. Everything you know, everything happens in its in its particular order, and um, it's it's kind of the best way I can say that is that it, it, it's kind of um, a fail and success kind of up and down thing. You know, I've mm-hmm. I've 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 really messed up some visits. <laughs> you know, I've really made some bad mistakes. You know, you've been told not yeah. to come back too, huh? Yeah. And, you know, uh, and, and and I reflect on those and I say, you know, I think about what I can do differently the next time. Um, and then, you know, as long as I stayed willing, I think that uh, I, I, I processed encounters with, with my colleagues, uh, with mentors, uh, kind of, you know, seeing what their experiences were. And then I would apply something different. Uh, and then just over time, I, I seem to kind of find a rhythm. Um, mm-hmm. but, right. but I think that... that I think the guiding force of that, though, was the fact that I really wanted to be authentic. Like, I wanted to be honest um, with every encounter. I really felt like, you know, it's not about me, but I'm bringing me to the moment. So why would I try to put on a show? Why would, you know, I mean, I, if, if, if it's about meeting people where they are, then I need to I need to find out where they are. <laughs> exactly right. And and, uh, and so that that is the motive and, and, and the process by which we get there is mm. it's you have to be creative. You have to be yourself. Well, it's refreshing for me to hear 
someone be able to be as eloquent as you about this because I, I've, I, I've questioned sometimes some of these folks that uh, we have interaction with in our support group and all that and how they're actually approaching their work and how they're going about it. You know, I, uh, you have such compassion. I'm, I'm curious and wonder what is this thing that you talk is saying self-compassion? What is, how do you define that? Uh, what is it all about and how come it's so important? Well, there, there's a, a, a number of ways to look at that. Um, I think when you, when you think about the concept of compassion, right? Compassion in and of itself is just the, the angst, the strong desire to, to support someone else that is going through a very difficult time. Like mm-hmm. compassion, it, it's it's being able to recognize that, wow, you know, this this is a terrible thing for you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and and so I'm going to get close to you um, if you want me to, or if you need me to, and seek to meet a need in order to be with you during that tough time. And so Self-compassion, right? It's 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 drawn from a Buddhist psychology, and and it simply means to reframe your mind for the purpose of relating to yourself in the in a, in a caring and compassionate way, while living out the negative aspects of the human experience, right? So, in you know the human experience, let, let, let's look at that for a second. I mean, it suggests that that life is oftentimes challenging. Right. Self-compassion plays a role in dealing with the stressful aspects of life. At the same time, you have the ability to develop a, a strength, a wherewithal, and become courageous in that endeavor. Um, and, and it elevates the understanding of the importance of self-care practices, right? Because we're supposed to self-care regularly. Mm-hmm. There's so much research on it, mm. right? So, so the idea when you enter, when you when you look at self compassion, it's the idea of taking a proactive approach to living your life, knowing that hard times are normal, mm. right? So, so I I really believe that self care is best defined um, as an understanding attitude toward yourself that demands warmth during during difficult difficult times. Simply put. You're being a friend to yourself, uh, mm. and, and and from a term from a hospice chaplaincy standpoint, it's a mindset. Number one, an ability. Number two, and the implementation of the same nature of compassionate care that you would provide to patients and families and staff, but turn inward. Um, that ability to interact with every aspect of self care that is vital to reducing the risk of burnout, compassion fatigue. Uh, and increasing resiliency in all caregivers. Uh, James, um, at what point in your practice of hospice chaplaincy or ministry did the concept of self-compassion become important to you? Was it an experience? Was it an event? Or just a topic of research? Yeah. So that is a wonderful question. Um, I think that self-compassion is something that I've always done on some level, but just wasn't aware of it. 
Like, I believe that many of us in chaplaincy do that. Many of us in healthcare do it, but we're not aware of it. And so there's no intentional implementation of the practice, right? So when you when when I looked at the fact that, you know, anything I do with purpose suggests that I am I am able to develop a rhythm and a standard to keep it going, then um I really feel like that's that's an that's an endeavor worth doing. So um what are the elements of self-compassion? The elements of self-compassion. All right. So first and foremost, the term mindfulness, right? So the authors Brines and Chen and, and Neff, you know, they define mindfulness as uh, taking a balanced and non-judgmental approach to negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so so for the, the, the clinical and healthcare chaplaincy, right, care of the mind and emotion that involves the individual's concentric circle, which includes families, friends, and community, along with various activities that provide comfort. Mm. So, so mindfulness is reflective and, and involves the everyday and ordinary present life of an individual. Mm. Uh, the second element would be self-kindness, um, being touched by and open to uh, one's own suffering uh, in the midst of a difficult time and not avoiding or disconnecting from it, mm-hmm. generating the desire to alleviate suffering and heal yourself mm-hmm. uh, with kindness. Um, and I would say the third element, and, and, and it is a very, very important element to understand, is that it is common humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, for us in hospice chaplaincy, you know, common humanity reveals various learned experiences. And they range from terminal illness to basic human suffering. Self-perception, as it relates to the placement among the society of human beings, that that includes various forms of pain, hardship, and anxiety. It's understanding and and the acceptance that anxiety and hardships hardships are are natural parts of of human life. Mm. Um, So those are the elements of self-compassion. Joe? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to formulate this question mm. that, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about taking care of yourself, really, when it really boils down to, as you were saying, mm-hmm. and how can, did you ever find that people look at you like you're being uh, selfish, maybe too much into yourself, that you just don't have time for others or time for things? I mean, does that enter into this at all? Well, of course, of course it would. And I, and I believe that is the whole reason why we should educate about self-compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this concept, contempt prior to investigation is not a good thing. Um, so if you automatically assume that when you have the word self prior to self-compassion, that's a selfish <laughs> concept. Mm-hmm. That's just not the case. Mm-hmm. It requires you to delve a little bit deeper. I think it, 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 the first and most important thing to consider that if you're implementing avoidance uh, in anything, it's never a good thing. It mm-hmm. leads to unprocessed grief, bitterness, resentments. There's a whole slew of maladaptive things that are that we can list here, right? And so all these negative indicators, they are building blocks that lead to burnout and compassion fatigue, proven. Um, mm-hmm. The implementation of self-compassion, it, I'm, I'm, I mean, it really does urge caregivers to face these issues without um, 
without being selfish, right? Because if you if you go through the process, you're giving yourself permission to allow these feelings that everyone feels, by the way, to surface. Um, it, it, it prompts us to acknowledge those feelings and then take actions to minister to ourselves, right? So the other thing to consider is how compassionate are we being with our patients if we're not compassionate with ourselves? Mm. That's a motivation. That's a motive issue. That's mm. an intent that you know, you can't prove that. And so it requires a, a lifestyle of rigorous honesty. And, you know, think I think about the times that I felt rejected by patients, marginalized by my leadership. I mean, uh-huh. these are issues that we face. But guess what? <laughs> We're responsible for how we feel about those. Um, what what should we consider as steps to promote the change in ourselves? That should be the question. Not this is someone else's fault. You know, they're doing this to me. Um, You know, we got to keep in mind our impact on others. That matters. Mm. Um, We ourselves are supposed to be holistically healthy. And, And we have to ask ourselves, since I've chosen this life, right? If I'm truly healthy enough to... I would say enough to minister to others, right? To patients. Then what am I doing about that? How am I ensuring that that's taking place? If this is what I do every single day, is it, is it time? I got to ask myself, is it time to take a break? You know, have, have, have I, have I disregarded some aspect of my self-care, whether being physically or, or spirit, spiritually, emotionally fit, you know, uh, have I received enough proper training going forward to do what I'm doing in this area? Um, and 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 I think the 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 toughest, most difficult thing for any professional to face is the fact that our attitudes are oftentimes impacted by our personal struggles, and they play mm-hmm. out whether we want them to or not. Yeah. And most times they play out at a time that we don't want them to. <laughs> and, and we are supposed to, to let our light shine, okay? But we're supposed to let our light shine by not diminishing or dimming the light of others. Amen. And, and that is the, that's the point to this. Well spoken, brother. That is that's powerful. Uh, how, can, how can, as we wrap up, how can people find you? How can people get a hold of you? Oh yeah. So, um, uh, you, you can submit messages on my website. Um, it's Charles Parker six dot academia dot edu. Um, or you can email me at, uh, ch Parker at palladium care.com. And, uh, I would enjoy, enjoy connecting. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, James. Very enlightening. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, let's catch up on Tuesday. Uh, that was Charles James Parker, who is a hospice chaplain with Palladium Hospice. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 